Welcome to Church Talk. I'm your host, Amanda Hall, here with Reverend Laurel Gray. This is the monthly episode of this podcast where we talk about the month's sermons, world events, and how we make sense of the complexities of life. If you'd like to submit a question or a discussion topic, please email it to podcasts at uucsw.org. We'll keep you anonymous unless you say we can include your name. In this episode, we'll be discussing the sermons We Begin Again in Love, Necessary Humanity, and The Saving Grace of Community. If you want to hear those sermons in their entirety, you can find them in the same podcast feed where you found this episode, and we'll also recap them here before discussing. Hi, Laurel. Hello. Happy winter to you. How are you? Oh, just just knitting, as always. (laughs) Ah, cozy. It's still cozy time. I know. (laughs) For our ultra cozy podcast. I'm developing a tea habit. Mm, That's seasonally appropriate. Also, I'm recently realized that I don't own a car scraper or a shovel or any like salt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's one discovery to make. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like I'm my Massachusetts like childhood background has not served me enough to prepare for this winter. (laughs) So your New Englander isn't showing. It's not. It's fine. It's okay. I mean, I swore at some pedestrians is that new england enough um (laughs) who knows just in my head though just in my head though i'm conflict averse well happy new year (laughs) happy new year here we are here we are um this is kind of a heavy month theologically and some really casual church conversations Mm -hmm. yeah just light of the month fluffy yeah (laughs) What like what is the name? What do you call the theme? The theme of the month um, was liberating love. So we use um, a company called called Soul Matters comes up with these like packets of information, and they it's a UU company, um, and they come up with themes of the month. And then like there's a certain extent to which I do or do not follow the theme, depending on everything else that's happening. Um, but it seemed particularly appropriate for like starting the new year, rooting down into um, what matters most to us and for MLK Sunday, um, talking about like what when he talks about love, like it's not squishy. That's not a fluffy, nice kind of love. Um, yeah. So that's what we were talking about this month in, in a whole variety of different ways of like what is what do we even mean by an ethic of love? Which is that um, when we're talking about Article 2, which is the new amendment to our principles, um, the central ethic is a love ethic. Um, So talking about like, what do we even mean by that, right? Because people have different understandings of what the idea, what the word love means. And so if we don't have a common definition, then we don't have a common understanding of what what we're talking about. Um, So that was kind of where we started. Um, And then I... For MLK Sunday, I didn't want to just do the sort of like, let's talk about his legacy, Um, because I think we've been seeing so much in the world of the danger of dehumanization and how that works. And people don't necessarily, once you know how dangerous it is, you'll, you'll get flagged by it. Like when someone starts using dehumanizing language, it'll sort of like make your hackles rise and this like 
this is scary and bad. We're getting into very scary territory. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of the focus of the MLK Sunday was like this thing of racism and white supremacy culture and um, the sort of wildness of the politics in our country and in the world. Like, how does it work? Like, what's happening Mm -hmm. there? Um, So that was a focus of that service. I just started recapping all of the services. Would you like me to continue? (laughs) We can go into more detail. An overview of our month. Just a little overview. And then we moved from from that, from MLK MLK and talking about, you know, dehumanization and moral injury. Um, Then this past Sunday, the 21st, um, we did child dedications. And so then I was talking about the experience of grace of when you're in a community where everyone is committed to a love ethic um, and everyone is sort of putting that out one hopes that that would mean that your experience as a member of the community would be the sort of surround sound of grace because grace being sort of undeserved love, like you don't have to do anything to be worthy of being on the receiving Mm -hmm. end of love. Um, So that was sort of the little, little casual entry into 2024. It's just really like, just some fluffy. (laughs) Yeah. Just rolling in with our slippers Uh on, stretching. Yep. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. talking about like moral injury dehumanization. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I think the so the be- we begin again in love yeah, sermon, which was also a snow day, so that caused a little bit of chaos. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in in that sermon, you gave a few different definitions, definitions yep. of love that are a lot more rooted in um some like pretty major concrete principles for yeah like liberation rather than the fluffy concept that you're right love is not nice feelings right that's like not it's not like loose boundaries (laughs) like that's not what we're talking about when we talk about Mm -hmm. love um do you want to do you want to give your definition i keep interrupting you (laughs) oh no i mean shall i continue go ahead please go ahead (laughs) Apparently, I'm really enthusiastic today. Um, Let's do it. Do it. We're jazzed so up. I We're like doing the, it. We're the going. Cornell, the Cornell West definition um, that justice is what love looks like in public. Um, and then the second half was, I think, something like, and tenderness is what love feels like in private. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think, and, and this is part of what you see on the like cringiness of on MLK Day, people using like, MLK quotes when it's like your I know that from your actions and your politics that your worldview actually has nothing to do with the kind of radical liberatory transformative love that MLK was talking about so this is like very whitewashed um, which is why on that Sunday I was like no let's let's talk about how like this thing works um, so love being um, the Reverend um, Rebecca Parker who wrote the book called Proverbs of Ashes Um, that we used in November to talk about redemptive suffering theology and how dangerous that is. And so she sort of, in that book, is using the idea of love as the counterpoint, the opposite to redemptive suffering. Um, And so her definition, the definition that I used in that sermon, comes from that same book. Um, And it, it boils down to that love is the thing that knows how to be in service to life. Um, And so it's like, 
talking about how love knows when distance is the thing that will create life and when closeness is the thing that will sort of create greater flourishing, um, which I think was really helpful because it pushes back against this idea of love being really like squishy um, mm-hmm. and like maybe a little codependent or like lacking in boundaries. Like that's not what we mean when we're talking about yeah. love. Um, which is also where Bell Hooks talking about the love ethic, then specifically talking about it as an ethic, I thought was really important. Um, specifically because she talks about the experience of what it's like to live with a love ethic and how people think like, you know, if if you're rooted down really deeply into a love ethic and you're focused on justice, then your world is going to come like become really sad and boring and like limited. And in mm-hmm. fact, it does the opposite, right? Where you're, if you're living really from that place of deep value and deep care, then it actually creates this like joyful, flourishing, like loveliness, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's just a lot more possibility. I think, yeah, when you do that, right? Like that's what it feels like to me. Yes, right, right. Which is true, also because part of what I was talking about was like when we start the new year, there's so much pressure to like fit yourself into a better version of you, which is really like clamp down, get smaller, often literally make yourself smaller um, or like behave. And a love ethic mm-hmm. is going to actually do the opposite of getting you not to behave, right? Because our systems and our society are not, right? They're, they're power dynamics that are power over, not power with. Um, and so living into a love ethic will actually make you uh, kind of wily, and countercultural. Yeah. So, yeah. But when I think about that, like rooting down into the the part of me that's coming from a place of like my deepest values are rooted in love, that actually feels really like centering and like you can breathe easier versus the like, let me make a list of all the ways that I should make myself better has like a mm-hmm. drill sergeant vibe. Um, yeah. So that was part of why I started there with the start of the new year to sort of help people not like... Don't be smaller in any way, right? Yeah. Um, be more yourself. Yeah. So, you know, um, small things. So <laughs> we talked, yeah. So an ethic of love is the antidote to redemptive suffering. Do you want to give like a super quick recap of what redemptive suffering means? Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about this again on Easter because as many people put together after that service, redemp- service in November, redemptive suffering is really closely tied up in some um, theologies of resurrection and Christianity. Um, Christianity Mm. is not like, does not automatically equal redemptive suffering, but the two have gotten kind of entangled in some ways. Um, So redemptive suffering quite literally means that you are redeemed by your suffering, um, which creates this really sticky problematic dynamic in which, um, you need to be purified by violence, which then means that violence is this really good and helpful thing, right? Which also then means you're justified in enacting it. Um, and we can see this on like um, the the sort of violence of one-to-one personal relationships, but then we can also see this on really large scales. Like we, we talked about that month um, about the prison system in the United States and how that is about like punishment for purification. Um, Mm -hmm. It also is a justification for genocide and removing entire peoples. And you can see then when you start to think about it that 
redemptive suffering theology is like very tied up in American history and American culture. So to be able to see it and say, I'm not going to play that game, like I don't do that thing, um, is actually very countercultural and and is itself, I think, a radical thing to do. Um, so, you know, good stuff. <laughs> yeah, totally. So you don't need to suffer to be worthy of love, right? Because we're universalists. So like, we're not playing that game. Absolutely not. Hard no. Yes. I think it's also, um, I mean, what I like remembering about alternative interpretations Mm -hmm. of, like, Jesus's life and message under Christianity is, like, liberation theology also falls under that. Correct. (laughs) Which is, like... Which is which much is more consistent with like yeah the opposite much yeah, more consistent and so, with like UU values yeah so I actually so I was ra- we've talked about this that I was raised in a small UU congregation that was like mostly um, disgruntled former Catholics and science professors who thought religion was stupid um, uh-huh. and so <laughs> I didn't realize until I got to seminary and was with a bunch of like really happy Christians who loved Jesus that I was raised to have a stranger danger reaction to Jesus and like, do not get in the white van. Like he is dangerous. You should be afraid of him. Didn't realize that they had taught me that. And then I was like, wait a second, what's happening here? And it wasn't. So I, I took a liberation theology class in grad school um, and went to Columbia, the country, not the, the college. Um, and learned about all these incredible, like, Oscar Romero and um, all these different um, Latin American liberation theologians who were fighting against American imperialism, who were fighting um, for, like, the empowerment of people who are impoverished. And suddenly I got it. Like, it was a version of Christianity that that I was like, okay, I understand this thing I have profound respect for now. Like, Mm -hmm. this one works for me. But taking that class and going and meeting with community organizers, some of whom were literally children um, when we went, and hearing them talk about what Christianity and specifically Jesus as a figure meant to them, um, as someone who helped them survive impossible things, suddenly I was like, okay, uh, back up, like I do not have a stranger danger reaction this is a foreign language to me, right? This theology is foreign to me. I'm just now sort of starting to like get it. Um, But my, my like cynicism about Christianity that I, I'd been raised in suddenly I was like, no, I, I, there, there's no room for cynicism here. Right. Like that comes from a place of profound privilege and, and I'm not, I'm no longer okay with anyone mocking Christianity. There are certain mm-hmm. versions that really need to be interrogated. Um, but like there this religious tradition has has truly saved people. Um, and I mean that in the like helping them survive circumstances that we could never want to fathom. Um, and so I have immense respect for that. And and so it was liberation theology that actually taught me about Christianity. Um, so you are correct. Good job. it's a really long tangent (laughs) and the central tenet of liter of liberation theology again is oh yeah so it's about liberation (laughs) yeah and so latin american liberation theology was where it started um and so also like a lot of people 
especially a lot of UUs, again, because they are former Catholics, can be very cynical about Catholicism. But liberation theology actually was invented by um, Latin American Catholic priests and Catholic people. Um, and so there is a lot of room. Um, obviously, power structures can become deeply problematic. So I'm not denying that. Obviously, we've seen the the violence and harm um, done by the Catholic Church. Um, but so this idea, so um, versus a redemptive suffering theology of like, Jesus died for your sins to save you from your sins, that's redemptive suffering theology. Liberation theology is that in Jesus, God became man to experience what it was to be human so that he could be with humans in that, in that experience and help them survive it. That's liberation theology. Um, so it's about this sort of, uh, so that that is, the term for that is accompaniment. And so it's about the power of connection to help you survive what is impossible. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the sort of divine choice to want to be in that place of suffering. So like, even if you think about the sermon that I gave, gave on Christmas Eve, and basically any time I preach about Christianity, I'm doing liberation theology, because that's sort of the only mm -hmm. version that I can like ethically jive with. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you're not alone. It's sort of liberation theology, and you also get to be powerful. Like there is power yeah. on the margins and the margins need to be um, centered, which is also part of the liberation theology movement was also pushing back against this idea of like the powerful benefactor of like, you just need someone to come and take care of you. Like poor, poor people who are so disenfranchised, like that's mm -hmm. liberation theology was very opposed to that um, sort of model of caretaking and instead is about the empowerment of people who have been disempowered. Um, yeah. So like, good. We support that. A, sol a solidarity, not charity model. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so then cool. from that, like that started um, in Latin America in the 1960s and 1970s, um, maybe a little bit before that. And then you, from that, you have Black liberation theology, which was sort of the American iteration within the Black church and Black theologians. Um, and then there's sort of all these different iterations, like womanist theology is, again, a different sort of part of this legacy of liberatory traditions. Um, that was a long tangent. <laughs> but yeah, it's important to... Yeah. Yeah, I kind of like talking about parallel ways... Like, ways that are not UUism, but, like, yeah. ways that embrace a lot of right, the same companions. things, but with different language. Yes, totally, totally. Because yeah. I think they help us to understand each other um, and to understand ourselves more fully, too. Um, and also, it's just nice to have those, like, really concrete object lesson and reminders that, like, hey, we don't know everything. Yeah, right, <laughs> um, right. Like, 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 take a step back from your cynicism and have a little right. humility. Like, you don't know all the things. And I certainly right. would not wish for a world that does not have Christianity in it because of its profound power to save people. Um, and I don't mean that in like a sort of obviously we're universalists. So we're not of the like, well, you not, need to be yeah. saved and baptized, right? Like we don't do baptism. Um, but I mean that in like more of an embodied literal like help you surviving the impossible 
I think that that is sort of a, um, that is a kind of salvation. Um, and Christianity has certainly done that for a lot of people. And so I don't want to discredit that. And I think cynicism sort of forgets that. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's why we actually talk about Jesus on Christmas and Easter, because I think it's really important. And I think for people who grew up in Christian traditions, um, whether or not they did them harm or not, I think to have a framework to talk about Christianity and Jesus as a religious figure that fits with Unitarian Universalism is actually really healing and powerful because it makes Mm -hmm. more space, right? Um, So these long forgotten things that maybe they valued, they don't you know, they don't have to give up lighting Advent candles because they're UU. Like, there's still room for that, um, even if maybe they've rejected a redemptive suffering type of theology that they were raised with. Um, yeah. So, yeah, come back on Easter. We'll talk about Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's pretty incredible, like, the power and resiliency of, like, people to just exist in impossible situations like right wild there's a lot of examples of it yeah but like yeah and and i think like the existence of these theologies is a perfect example of like the like post-traumatic wisdom or like during traumatic wisdom yeah (laughs) like right Right. i don't know what the prefix is that means during (laughs) Um, right. But the process of like creating, that, yeah, life. Yeah. That incredible destruction. Right. Like that incredibly creative. Yes. Right. And like deeply connected powers, like. Correct. Kind of awe inspiring. Like it gives me goosebumps. Yeah. Same. Like, same. Right. It's pretty amazing. Right. right. Yeah. And even if it doesn't belong to you, right? Like you don't have to believe right. in Jesus or feel like feel particularly comfortable with Christianity, but I certainly don't want someone who claims to be a UU going around, like, judging someone else for being Christian, right? We don't know what what type of Christianity, like, certainly if someone is engaging in violent behavior, that is a thing that we can take issue with. Um, yeah. But, like, even the term Christianity is so broad that that's not enough information to go on, right? Because there yeah. are things that one would call Christian that are actually in full direct opposition to each other. Um, yes. So I think you have to start start asking more questions instead of just, f- like, wholesale writing it off. Um, so. And I mean, it's also a reminder that of, like, the human capacity to build what we need where we are with what we have. Yeah, right. Like, even if it looks like not a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like, you can start making that world right now. The one that has what you need in it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Anyway, it's pretty amazing. Liberation. It's a good It's a good thing. So moving to a pretty tough subject of dehumanization <laughs> and moral exclusion. I mean, uh-huh. I think this is the flip. This is the flip side of it's like no mean feat to get someone to a place where they can murder other people. Yes. Like, yes. That requires. Yes. Not like, I don't want to say like creativity or ingenuity, but what I mean is like pretty evil genius is definitely a thing. Yeah. Like it takes, I mean, it's the flip side of like the human ability to create 
Correct. things. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, right. we can also We are create... profoundly resilient, and yet we are also all human um, and can succumb to these very powerful coercive forces um, that, yeah. like, can di- get us to do things that we could never imagine. Um, as part of our... Um, as UU ministers, in addition to going to grad school, there's this like massive reading list that we have to go through. And one of the things that really stuck with me was this essay that was written by a guy who is, um, he was like the former president of the human rights campaign or something. But so he was someone who went all over the world um, and encountered people who had, who had, um, engaged in torture. So people who had gotten to the place where they engaged in torturing other humans. Um, and he, and in this sort of all of this experience that he has, he talks about how people can become compelled to do things that they can, they never imagined they would be capable of doing. Um, which sort of makes you realize the humanity of people, even people doing horrible things and the sort of coerciveness mm-hmm. of power. Um, and what he comes down to at the end, which I thought was really potent and that I've held on to in like moments of my own doubting, is that his most fundamental theological belief is that there is always another move, which to mm-hmm. me is like there's always room for possibility um, because he told this story about... Um, I'm trying to remember what it was because I read this this essay like almost 10 years ago. Um, but I think what happened was there was someone who had been tortured and they encountered the person who had tortured them like in the outside world after the whole thing was over. Um, and they both were human, right? In this way mm. that was like the person engaged in the act of torturing was not some villain, they were a person who also had been in an, an impossible circumstance. Um, and the the power of the person who'd been on the receiving end and their capacity to understand that and not be tied up in um, hating that the, the person who inflicted the harm or demonizing them and understanding it was part of this much bigger thing. Um, and he saw that as like this profoundly hopeful thing Um that like even the moment of greatest violence, that's not the end of the road, that there is something that can happen after that and that that more is always possible. Um, And I think that's really powerful because it always means that creativity is still on the table. Um, But but this idea that um, like people who engage in profound violence, like they are also human and something had to happen to them to get them to do that thing. Um, And it's really easy to try and just like blame them as this sort of, they are distinctly awful and horrible and remove that from a system, which then makes the system invisible, right? The system that got everyone to the place where torture became a feasible option. Um, So that's, that's part of what we were getting to on the, the MLK service. Um, Because at the end of the sermon, I, sort of flip it and say, like, would you be willing to turn someone's tactics against them? And this is the promise of universalism, is that we will never do that. Um, Which I think is also very protective, right? Um, So, yeah. Yeah. So I think, like, the just to kind of recap that sermon, (laughs) (laughs) 
um <laughs> yes <laughs> while while we while we talk about it uh-huh. um yeah so there are three like terms mm-hmm. that we use to understand that process by which someone is able to inflict right. unthinkable violence right um dehumanization mm-hmm. uh which is what it sounds like, like right? Group. <laughs> <laughs> is like what the word means, right? Right. So dehumanization is like stripping someone's humanity away, such that they, so that it leads into moral exclusion, which is the second term. So by by stripping away the, their humanity, they are no longer within the bounds of um, someone's sort of normal moral compass. Um, because all these different researchers talk about how humans, because we're social creatures, have this innate need not to kill other humans or not to degrade other humans because we're very social creatures. And so then if you want to be able to be violent or degrading towards someone else, you need to remove them from the circle of humanity, basically, which is where dehumanization is this tactic Um, which you see in war propaganda. I'm sure if you listen to the news and you look at headlines and read, you know, like the difference between who just dies and who has been murdered, um, that kind of language will tell you about who is being excluded from humanity and whose humanity is being taken for granted and remains part of the group. Um, And so there's dehumanization and moral exclusion are this process that work together. Um, And then the third part of this that sort of holds this mechanism together is the idea of moral injury. And so moral injury is a kind of trauma that we inflict on ourselves when we abandon our own moral compass. Um, Because if we think about trauma, often we think about it um, like PTSD, the scholars talk about as being a sense of violation with the world, like the world has become unsafe. And moral injury is is the internalized version of that where we have become unsafe, that... um, our humanity has become into question because we have done something so monstrous. Um, And so this is the catch, because if you're engaging in dehumanization and moral exclusion, you have to remain committed to that. Otherwise, if people come back inside your sense of who counts as humanity, then you're on the hook for moral injury, because then you have violated your own moral code, which is where you get to this place where people are stuck in this having to choose between seeing the humanity in a different person or or losing their sense of their own humanity, which is where you see people mm-hmm. becoming like viciously racist in this way that is sort of like we've entered into a place of insanity. Um, and that's what's that's the dynamic that's happening. Um, so which suddenly makes it make a lot more sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because given the choice between sort of destroy the other or destroy myself, you know, there's a human impulse to survive. Um, Mm. So, but it explains why, like, say you have your, you know, racist uncle or whoever it is, and you try and argue with them and prove them wrong, why that doesn't actually work at all, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're not in the place of, like, thought and intellect. You're in the place of, like, I survive or they survive. Mm. Right, which is a much yeah. deeper, older, like, lizard brain thing. Not like a, there's not a whole lot of thoughtfulness in that because you're just trying to survive and you feel so profoundly threatened. So. 
Yeah, I think you there's know. a lot of other examples that people could think of of yeah. um, certain kinds of figures who get dehumanized. So, yes. like, dehumanization definitely, like, there's dehumanization rhetoric that applies to a lot of marginalized groups. Yes. Um, and also people who are objectified in other ways, like, I would argue, like, celebrities. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, like, political figures and... Yep. Um, right, where they cease to be human, right? Because this is... Dehumanization is... We think about it in the sort of degrading sense, like we have called them animals. But there's also the dehumaniz- dehumanization of putting someone on such so high pedestal that they are also removed from humanity, right? That they become, like, godlike. Um, yeah. And so, again, like, they, they're not inside the sort of circle of how things function um right and then you can just sort of again like unimaginable things to like people who stalk celebrities i think that would also be um yeah you know well it's complicated but (laughs) so i mean granted they have a lot more power to insulate themselves against correct some of the violent like implications of that dehumanization yes right right it's not the same, yeah. but it is born of but the same But this is where, like, it's function. not flattering. This is, like, the model minority problem. Like, it's still racism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? And it's still hugely damaging because you're still telling someone that they're not human, um, which then makes all kinds of things possible, right? Even if you're saying, like, oh, you're better, right? Or saying, like, black athletes are more athletic like that's still racism right right the even quote if you're unquote, like, positive stereotypes exactly exactly like that's still really bad and really dangerous because you're still yeah. removing people from humanity um and it's also kind of why like objectifying women right yeah, like right. being yeah. attracted to someone and dehumanizing them are not the same right right like because one is about a power dynamic right yeah and dehumanization. I mean, mm-hmm. it really impo- impo- like, makes violence possible. <laughs> so I just think, I mean, there's a lot of examples that are more and less extreme, right. but also more and less conspicuous. Right. Um, right. Th- that kind of all fall under that same umbrella. Right. Um, and it's, I mean, once you start looking for examples of like dehumanizing language, there's really a lot out there. Yeah, it's not and, it, and it's so uncommon. slippery because we think, like, we yeah. saw this a lot with um, liberals mocking Trump for his body mm-hmm. and and the sort of, like, comparing him to an animal. Like, that's still, it It feels like the moral high ground because you're, you're sort of dehumanizing someone doing something horrible. But the problem is you're actually, you're participating in, in dehumanizing behavior, which suddenly makes all kinds of things possible instead of saying I'm criticizing this person because their actions are violent. That's not dehumanizing, right? That's actually saying, and they're inside my sense of humanity and they are also accountable for the way that they treat other people. Right. Um, Right. I mean, I think there's a really big diff, like accountability belongs to humanity. Right. In a lot of ways. So like when you're talking about like people who talk about, um, like abolition, for example, centers yeah. humanity really yeah. seriously. Like it's born out of universalism. Yeah. Like every, like you have to, 
like basically in order to lock people up in cages, right? You have to do a little dehumanization, yeah, to right? Have like cr- to make quote unquote criminals dehumanized so that they lie outside your scope of right. Humanity. It becomes possible. It even becomes good, right? To punish and them, right? Again, with right. the, the purifying power of violence, right? Right. We should and it's question that whenever it arises. Yeah. And that is completely not the same as holding someone accountable Correct. for right. their action in a way that recognizes the fullness of their humanity. Right. Because seeing the fullness of someone's humanity is the least fluffy thing you can do. Like, yes. that is metal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's hardcore. Hu- right. Humanity is, like, complicated and, yeah. like, takes a lot of fortitude to really see baldly (laughs) and entirely and still like doing it from a place of love doesn't mean it's pretty yeah no Um, right not at all but that's where like actual accountability can exist because it belongs to a humanity (laughs) like that you have to keep intact i mean you just do yeah right right like you never have done so much harm that you that you actually get released from the system of accountability, right? That's right. that's not a thing, right? You're still you're still bound up in the the effects of your own actions, and you are still accountable for them. Um, yeah. There was some Stalin quote about like killing one person is murder, but like killing thousands of people is a statistic, which is sort of pointing mm-hmm. to that like it got so big that they're not even human, so it doesn't even count, and they're not accountable for their actions. But I think part of this is like, to what you're saying, we have to, we also can't have a naive understanding of humanity, right? Like humanity is capable of profound evil. That is within the scope of what's possible for us. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really scary to people because they're sort of like, a. but I couldn't do horrible things. I'm a nice person. And it's like, well, right, again, to the, the torture conversation, like, under what circumstances, right? What does it take to get a yeah. person to do that? Um, yeah, super fluffy. <laughs> well, it's kind of, I mean, it's much less scary to say, well, that is not the same kind of being as me. The, exactly. The kind of being who can yes. commit an act of violence I am like safe that. from that thing. Right. Like, it's much, much scarier and yeah. can threaten our sense of self and security and safety and identity right. to say, well... Like, I am the same in this fundamental way of being human as this, like, part of humanity that has committed such really horrible violence. Right. Because, like, we want to think that would never be possible for someone who's fully human, like us. Right. So. Which, again, like, circling fully back then hides the systemic abuses of power that make people mm-hmm. do horrific things, right? If, right? if we if it turns into this individual thing, um, then it hides the entire infrastructure because it's just that one person's fault, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> In A family lot. systems um, theory, we refer to this as the identified patient, which is like in the system of a family or an organization, there's one person that is either like, the the sort of golden child or the troublemaker um, who gets mm. often focused on as like being, you know, they are the problem or they are the solution. 
And there's, um, they refer to it as the identified patient, meaning that like they're the, just the place it shows up, but they're not actually where this problem came from, right? So like, mm-hmm. don't fall for the trap of the scapegoat, the the sort of problem child, the bad person. That's actually a symptom of a system that's dysfunctional, um, mm. which I thought was really interesting when I learned that. Like, right, if you see this, you you need to look deeper and you probably don't actually need to investigate that individual person all that thoroughly. Um, yeah, because they're just showing you a system that's in chaos. Um, hmm. So we're just like really covering my graduate <laughs> education cool. today. Do we all get honorary? <laughs> yeah, divinity honorary degrees? masters of divinity. <laughs> <laughs> you too are a minister. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Should we talk about grace? Yeah, let's talk about grace. You know. <laughs> In fact, the saving grace of community. It's almost like you preached a sermon called that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Hey, Laurel, what's grace? What a good question. (laughs) Um, So grace freaks people out because they think it's about God, which it can be. So that's not entirely wrong. Um, What was the the Oxford Dictionary definition? Um, What was the first word? It was like unnecessary goodwill. Unnecessary is the wrong word. But it was talking about this like undeserved, positive. Um, Unjustified? Maybe. It? It's in the Wait. sermon. We could go look O-E-D. it up, but we're not going to. I'm um, going to right now. To. Um, but grace being this sort of posture of goodwill, regardless of what you have done, um, which can get sticky And grace has totally been, again, with, like, weirdly abused Christian theology. Um, Grace is not um, coming back into relationship with violence. That's not grace, right? Because if grace Mm -hmm. is fundamentally about being on the receiving end of undeserved love, that's still relying on that definition of love, um, which still has bound up in it ideas of justice. And so... I think about grace as I am not going to do to you what you did to me if it was violent. Like, I'm going to break mm-hmm. that cycle of retaliatory engagement. Um, and it doesn't mean like, oh, we're going to be besties and you can do whatever you want and I'll forgive you every time. That's not what grace is. Grace is this like, I wish you well and I am not actually going to participate in a cycle of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, to your point again, like grace is also kind of metal, right? It is not, it's not squishy, right? It's not like anything goes, right? Um, I think that like anything goes and putting up with behavior that is violent and destructive and you are not okay with, putting up with it is actually a lie, right? Grace requires mm-hmm. honesty um, and truthfulness. And um, again, to that definition of love of making space for life to flourish, sometimes grace is like, I, we, we will no longer be in contact. That can yeah. be grace. Um, because it's to say, I am not going to do to you what you have been doing to me, but nor will I tolerate staying present for this kind of suffering. Um, yeah. And I think that the, the power, powerful thing about community that I was talking about is that graces can be a very hard thing to generate as an individual, 
But the thing about community is that if you were all doing this thing together all the time, there's you can sustain something that you can't sustain at all times as an individual person. Um, so that's the hope, right? And if people yeah. aren't experiencing your committee as your community as being one that is gracious or grace filled, then like, are you ha- are you living with a love ethic? <laughs> like mm-hmm. hmm, maybe we should maybe we should talk about that right um yeah so and and i had thought about in this service doing sometimes this congregation which i've never experienced in any other congregation does like a congregational response where they can respond to the sermon directly afterwards which when i first heard about this i was like that is terrifying <laughs> um, <laughs> but occasionally it can be really powerful and this was one sunday where it was like if we were not also doing child dedications at this service would not end up being an hour and a half long. I, I think it would have been really powerful um, mm. to, to sort of open up space for having people share about like, have you experienced grace in this community? And what was that? What was that like for you? Um, mm. So, you know, we kind of do that on, on members and friends Sunday. So that was my like, hold this thought for later. Um, yeah. But I hope that people left that service thinking about it, right? Like, where are the places in this community that I experience grace and where are the places that I can offer it, right? Um, Mm. Which, again, does not mean being fluffy and lying when people are being horrible, right? It means meeting them with kindness but clarity when they're they're out of line. Um, Yeah. So, you know. Hmm. (laughs) I think it's... It helps, again, to circle back to differentiating between, like, conflict and violence. Yes. Because right. Conflict can be like, really positive. Right. Super generative and clarifying. Yeah. Right. And that's not what violence is. No. Right. Violence <laughs> um, is destructive and conflict is an opportunity for, like, new things to arise or tell, tell to tell the truth about things that have not been working. Um, yeah. Not that conflict can't be violent. Like, right, it can <laughs> like, be. It certainly can be. Sometimes but it does not have to present be. there, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Yeah. I also took a class on that in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Conflict okay. Transformation. <laughs> cool. This is really Let's... funny. <laughs> How many we classes? Left out? We just went through like six different graduate level classes. <laughs> in, Did in we what, leave any minutes? out? <laughs> what, what other ones? <laughs> Womanism, liberation theology, um, <laughs> like systematics. You know, yeah. we covered some territory. Are there any other classes that we should hit in this episode? Well, I think conflict transformation is a good one, which we we which we got to. Excellent, excellent. You no, know? and then um, there was all the uh, extracurricular UU reading. <laughs> oh yeah. Did you do any like arts classes for credits that we can tip? Oh my gosh! One of my friends bullied me into taking a singing class, which was terrifying. (laughs) Oh no! Which is actually the class where I learned about microphones, which is a useful thing that you do actually need to know as a minister about microphones. So (laughs) okay, you know, and there are many indexes in the back of a hymnal organized in many different ways because I did not know um I'm not even gonna use the right words to talk about this but um songs have certain kinds of meter like in poems there are sort of certain kinds of rhythms 
And Mm -hmm. words have that as well as tunes, which is where you can, they're like these number codes that tell you what kind of, I think it's metric, um, the, the song has, which is where you can switch. Like, I don't know if you've seen, Jimmy Kimmel has a show that does this, where they swap the words from a song with a very different tune and put them together and they work because the meter matches. I had hmm. no idea until I took that class in grad school. Huh. Yeah. The more you know. <laughs> well, well, that rounds out our collective degree. And <laughs> welcome now we to ministry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and we can graduate back into our day as we wind Amazing. down this podcast episode. And next um, month, we're going to talk about yes. justice. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Good stuff. I, I see more definitions in our future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And st- actually, February will be more about like history and storytelling about justice. Um, oh. So my plan is because it's Black History Month, the first Sunday, we're going to talk about um, some of the less flattering uh, parts of UU history in terms of our um, dealings with Black people and Black empowerment. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's important to talk about because sometimes we got it right and sometimes we got it very wrong. Um, So that's important to tell that story. And then we're also going to talk about um, disability justice later in the month. Um, So that will be important. And the development of the American with Disabilities Act. You know, good stuff. Humanizing stuff. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Liberatory stuff. (laughs) We should cut me off now. Well, until next month, hashtag stay liberated, hashtag keep liberatory theology. I love it. Yeah. Stay liberated. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) See you later, everybody. (laughs) 